Um, how many of you guys go to dinner parties? Dinner party? I know. I wrote this question, and I was like, what would be the alternative <laughs> for this? So, um, so when someone starts talking, it could be at church, you know. Like, you've ever, like, walked up on a conversation, and then you hear what they're talking about, and then you're like, I'm just going to back out of this conversation. Um, so let's, let's say, what would make you walk away from a conversation because it's either boring or does not interest you? So we, don't, we can avoid, like, hot fire political or whatever topics, but because it's boring or does not interest you. Like, someone's talking, and you're like, I think I have to uh, freshen up uh, my makeup. Or <laughs> What's that? Teachers that are talking. Okay. So, oh, where where is your where is your wife? Uh, so, the other. When they're talking, when they're when teachers are teachers are talking shop. Is that what you're saying? Okay. Okay. So, did she say that about engineering, clothing? Okay. Well, hold on a second. Hold on a second. We'll get we'll get we'll get to this. Second. Clothing. What are they talking about? Like work boots. <laughs> All right, uh, Quentin. You said what? NFL football. <laughs> For the new league. So, um, yeah. Anything else? Cars. <laughs> John, maybe she just hasn't had the right experience, right? So, uh, money, it'll all, it'll all work out in the end. That's probably, that's probably, that's probably a good segue um, to where we're headed. So, uh, over, you know, last week and then we'll, we'll probably be spending a couple more weeks kind of going through these matters, but we've been talking even with our passage beforehand in, in uh, our, our 48th uh, book that we were looking at. So we're in 49 with Revelation 20. Uh, we started kind of talking about uh, the millennium. And we started with, with kind of looking at four different perspectives on you know, how you can interpret Scripture. So we went over that uh, last week to kind of say, like, well, we look at passages. How do you generally look at passages? And there's even sense where some of the moral or uh, spiritual kind of overtones, we, you kind of emphasize more so. Jesus spoke in parables, but he used a physical thing to talk about a spiritual principle. But how do we, how do we take that, you know, the things that he said? And so we would say literally is how we would interpret Scripture. But even in through the literal interpretation, you know, in the lens that we look at, there are different views. And so we looked at those different views. And, uh, you know, one was how, we, how you look at Israel and the church. Um, and I'll, you know, talk about what that looks like uh, just a little bit um, as we look at certain passages. Uh, and so when we kind of see, like, how you, you know, what's your view on Israel in the future, and has the church replaced Israel, or is there a future that helps, that kind of can, like, direct how you look at different passages. So we looked at that diagram. Uh, for those that were here last week, do you guys still see it? What's that? <laughs> how many here? How many were here last week? Okay. Can you guys still see? Okay. And everyone else is like, I don't know what you see, but you can't unsee it. And so there's. 
What did you? That could be there too. I don't know. So, um, <laughs> anyway, so there's certain things in Scripture that we say like once you see it, you can't unsee it. And so, what? What do you What do you see? A pebble. Okay. So it's a brick wall, right? And maybe a pebble. Is a pebble somewhere in here? Okay. Uh, do you see this brown thing right here? It's a cigar sticking out, and that's the, the that's the ash. Oh, what'd you say? It's a cigar sticking out oh, of the wall yeah. with the ash. Okay. So, I just it was something I saw a few years ago, but even when I looked at it recently, I was like, I can't unsee that. Yeah. So sometimes when either like through our experiences and through how you were raised and interpreting scripture, you're like, well, I just don't see that. And so sometimes that's like you know, happens when we look at scripture. This was another one. Is cat going up or down? We're not going to relive all this. This is why you should, why you got to make it every time. So is the cat going up? Is the cat going down? It kind of looks like it in both perspectives. And so depending on how you look is, you know, you can see it both ways. I, I, I will talk that way sometimes when I talk about passages because I'm like, well, I see how you can see it that way. And I might lean one way or another. And so can you, can you see, see that? And there are other things that I just can't. And then there's like crazy funky you know, things are moving, you know. So, surely I know. So we looked, we looked at kind of the, then when you look at, when we go to Revelation 20, we'll go through that again, that there's uh, four different views of the millennium. So where does Revelation 20 kind of fit into this? Well, it gives us particular language that these views have been, certain views have been adopted from that aren't just isolated to Revelation 20, but um, again, we'll, we'll kind of go over a few of these in just a second. So, uh, we'll read through this passage and then start jumping into where we left off last time. So in chapter 20, verse 1, we read, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not uh, deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Okay, so that's not all of chapter 20, but the main aspects of what we're looking at for chapter 20. And we'll do the rest of chapter 20 when uh, we come back from our break, at least my break. I'll, I'll talk about that in a bit. Um, okay, so we kind of looked at, again, last week, these four different views. I know it's hard to blow up on this direction, but there's four different views. There's kind of three essential views. There's amillennialism, postmillennialism, and there's premillennialism, and then different views in premillennialism. But essentially, 
Amillennialism is, the term is that ah is no millennium, but that's not necessarily what's understood, is that we are currently living in the tribulation period that's spoken of in Revelation 4 through 19, or at least most of that. So um, this, there, this is a, we're in the realized millennium. That thousand years is a long time, and we are currently within that period of time. Postmillennialism is that we are in kind of the tribulation period, which will start to get better, and then as it gets better, this millennium will be realized, and at the end of the millennium, so things will get better and better and better until it's so perfect through the church and the spreading of the gospel that Christ will then come and um, reign. And then there's a premillennial, which is everything that's spoken of in Revelation, or at least most of, you know, 4 through 19 and 20, is all future. Um, Everybody syncs up when we get to like 21 and 22, so we'll come back to common ground um, in a little bit. I say everyone, but even within these views, there's kind of differences. But this is a generality that you can, can look at, and I'll just leave that up there for a second if you want to drift and see. But even then, there's like a whole lot of other views as well. My right hand? Okay. That's Vanna. Um, so, and then a lot of people are as, you know, you've probably heard the joke or what's called pan-millennialists. Is that it'll all pan out in the end, you know? So they're like, I really don't, if you've never heard that. So um, they're like, does it really matter? And so those are the things that I want to kind of talk about. Like, does it matter and how much does it matter? And so it's in Scripture, so it matters. And so, but how much it matters and all the things that we'll look at kind of will come from there. Uh, I can share it, sure. It's not too hard. Yeah, if you look up, I think this is, a well, if you probably look at four views of the end times, you could probably find it on Google. So, um, and there's a book, and there's lots of books, and so there's all, there's a certain amount that we'll go through, um, you know. But I also f- anyway. So there's there's a lot that you can can kind of get into when you wade in these waters. So, so last week we looked at verses one through three, and we we talked about what the pit or the abyss was this, that was described happening after this um, big event where Christ comes down, uh, you know, in kind of his glorious look with, you know, the, the king of kings kind of banner and with the sword of his mouth uh, coming out of his mouth, and then everyone is, is vanquished, and there's this gorging of all the flesh of the earth by the birds. Well, right after that, there's this binding of Satan. And so, just real quick. This binding of Satan, and so we looked at what this pit and abyss was, and the fact that demons seem to be chained already. Revelation talks about a releasing of Satan from this pit, and then at the end of this time, at the end of that battle, right before the thousand years is up, there's this chain put upon Satan, and he is bound. And so that you know, we looked at like what he can do and what he can't do, and so those are the things that we're we're going to talk about. So. It, it looks like this event is a future event, and how do we take some of these events? You know, is it, is it spiritually Satan is bound, or is he physically bound? And again, you'd say figurative language, well, he's a, he's a fallen angel, so does he have a body, and what, what does that look like? But again, there's things that are being communicated, and how much is figurative, and how much do we take that? But we want to continue on and kind of look like, so all of these things 
And what we're trying to understand in these verses, um, um, how they're uh, described uh, as such. Okay, so verses 4 through uh, 6. So read, then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in this first resurrection. Over such a second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So, first first few verses is Satan. Something's happened with Satan. He's bound, and then he can't do um, what he has been known to do for a thousand years. You know, Peter would describe Satan as a lion, you know, prowling around, seeking to devour during this time, Satan is, is bound by this chain, particularly so he can't deceive, right? So, and thrown back into this pit, which we saw earlier on. It kind of shifts a little bit into, like, what else is seen during this time. And we see, you know, that there will be these people there that will be reigning, and they'll be sitting on thrones. And so, that, that's the first thing that John kind of describes in verse 4. Now, what's the purpose of these thrones, at least what we see in this verse? What does it say? Okay. Yeah, and that's, that's describing like those who are sitting on there have been given the authority to judge, right? So what does that signify? When we like, understand, you know, sitting on thrones in order to judge. Um, what, would, what would you say? Yeah. Okay, yeah, so it's, it's kind of maybe like a discerning uh, aspect, right? So is this like the final judgment, or is this some other judgment? If it's a final judgment, then that would mean like, are other people involved in the final judgment? But this doesn't seem like, like what's going to happen, although there will be a final judgment spoken of at the end of Revelation, but we'll talk about that later. It seems to be separated by this thousand years, so this, this term uh, that we're seeing. So if we, if we thought about who were the judges at the time of Christ... Like, who would those have been? What's that? Okay, well, I guess you could say that with maybe within the church, but I'm thinking even, like, within, like, the society that Jesus and the disciples were in. Who would have, who would have? Okay. Yeah, so you've got, like, a group called the Sanhedrin, right? And so the Sanhedrin was a group of this council of 70 um, members that would rule and make judgments based on, like, Jewish law. It was made up of the religious factions, mostly Sadducees and Pharisees, but there were others. There were some that were of political, you know, clout, but that was mostly, like, the Sadducees kind of fit both of those roles. But it, it formed kind of a religious, you know, ruling for what they would say is right or wrong. You know, when Jesus came before before them, he wasn't before the whole Sanhedrin. It was kind of a group that was cobbled together. But that was kind of the idea. We do see the Sanhedrin that was asked to be together when Paul, you know, was tried, even when John uh, was thrown into prison and all of that. And so you kind of have like this group that, you know, were they, you know, they would sit, um, you know, kind of in a circle and, and give their judgment on matters related to Jewish law. 
You can see something similar when you have like maybe like a tribunal or um, in kind of the Roman day when Paul was maybe grabbed and brought before the you know seats of judgment that were in these different cities. So it was usually a Roman political figure, like a governor or you know that type of aspect, someone lower than a governor. Um, that would give again, like have to rule on a matter of that day. Well, the fact that they're sitting on thrones, what does that indicate? Well, it seems like something about judgment, right? Relaying to matters uh, that need to be, you know, um, ruled upon, you know, like one way or another. And then it says at the end of verse 4 that they're also doing something else. So they have the authority to judge, but what are they doing? With Christ for a thousand years. Okay, so you've got this this reigning with Christ for a thousand years. Now, when you hear the idea of reigning, what does that sound like or indicate? Okay, and I know, like you kind of use a we use those kind of terms like synonymously. We would say a judge makes rulings, but they're not like an authority over us in, in like civic matters, as like you would think a governor or a president, or even during this time, a king or even Caesar. Uh, and that term for reigning actually is, you know, a word, it's called basileo. And so, like, you get a word basilica kind of from that. But basileo, and it's the verb form of, you know, being a king or a chief. And so this idea of reigning has kind of this, again, um, leadership aspect to it. So judgment is, again, in discernment, usually with in making a judgment based on what's right or wrong or according to the law, and acting as a ruler or a chief on these thrones. So interesting that you have this thing, you have these people described and what this position would be. Now, who is it that we see reigns with Christ for a thousand years while Satan is bound? Okay, so you can say gen- generically, uh, those who suffer the most. And how are they described? So those who were beheaded for the testimony of Jesus, right, and the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast. So when we look at those who had died, kind of like that specifically being beheaded, we don't necessarily see that, but those who died for the testimony of Jesus is described earlier in Revelation. It's kind of in the, the near context of taking what is John seen and what maybe he's referencing. So in Revelation 6 9, we read, When he opened, this is an angel, opened the, or sorry, this is, the, this is Jesus himself actually. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God. And for the witness they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So you see this you know, event described earlier that it's the fifth seal, so the previous four seals are certain um, judgments that have occurred. And at the fifth seal, 
You hear those that had died for the word of God, similar language here, it didn't say they were beheaded, but those who had been slain for the word of God, they cry out and they say, hey, is this time for, you, for judgment to happen? They were given a white robe and, and told, rest a little longer until the time is complete. And there's enough servants, right, that, you know, that they have been killed in order to uh, enact this time where the judgment will happen. Okay? So kind of have those couple things in mind as we're kind of reading, reading these verses, right? So those who died for Christ and those who refused to follow the beast will reign. And so martyrs for Christ seem to have a special role in heaven. And those who suffer for not uh, falling under the delusion of the beast will also have a special role in heaven, this judgment or reigning. So, um, and there's other verses that talk about believers reigning and ruling in heaven, but I don't know, I guess it's kind of too far off. But specifically here in this aspect, it seems like they're given a particular judgment ability for their previous suffering, um, either during the tribulation or before this time. And so, some of the questions are then like, well, what does this reign look like? You know, if they are judging, um, what are they determining, right? Like, you know, and if they are ruling or acting as leaders, who are they leadership over? And so, you kind of have like these questions that like pop up, like, what is that, what is that, you know, what does that lead us to, to understand, um, and we kind of like start thinking a little bit longer, right? Like who is a part of this kingdom? So we have like the leaders that are talked about and who else is a part of this thousand years, this kind of rule of Christ, right? So you'd say like, is it the believers that either made it through the tribulation or those that had been all believers, right? Or is it those, you know, that are post-rapture believers. Um, that's kind of something that you think about. Uh, would they have glorified bodies that Paul has talked about, right, in the resurrection? There's a time that, like, right, there's, these souls have been given white robes <laughs> that they're to rest for a little bit longer. Um, are they waiting, you know, for a glorified body? And what is that, again, what does all that look like? Um, so this is kind of where, like, you start maybe having uh, pop culture or certain things that, like, you, we've seen or we've understood kind of, like, seared into our brains about what that might look like. And then some just haven't really given it any thought at all. Like, I don't know, haven't, haven't thought about that. And we're going we're gonna to think a little bit more, uh, particularly, like, in the new heavens and the new earth, what that may look like when we get to Revelation 21 and 22, a little bit more hand. But there's kind of questions that come up. And so there's a, there's a term, though, that's described um, for this new life. And what is, what is it described at the end of verse 5? Yeah. So we, so we have kind of like this separation. It says, verse 5, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. So, again, as you kind of pull different verses together and kind of like the theology and the things that we've looked at in past chapters and maybe even some things that we haven't looked at, 
um, specifically as a, as a class, you start kind of pulling together, like, when we go, like, if, if you die today and you go to heaven, what would that look like? And I had mentioned this, I can't remember when we talked about it, maybe it was when we talked in John 3, because I'll reference that again, um, kind of this idea of what's called, like, an intermediate state, right? Before we're given a resurrected body, what do things look like in the in-between? <laughs> do we have bodies? Are we disembodied souls? Is that thing, you know? So I wrote a paper on it, but you guys can read that later. I think, <laughs> what's that? Uh, what, this idea of, Yeah, I'm not sure all, well, there's a few verses, because you, um, you know, when Jesus talked about, remember, uh, who was it, the beggar, um, Lazarus, right, that was, uh, you know, that that had, is somebody saying that right? Yeah, that had died, and then, like, had cried out to um, to Abraham, you know, and to tell his his brothers about this place. There's kind of like this intermediate state, right? We'll, we'll talk about this <laughs> next week when we get to like, what if all this, what is it? Well, I say next week, but I won't be here next week. But when we get to this next time about what does that look like, kind of this intermediate position. But again, like there's a whole lot that you can kind of think about. But do you guys have defined thoughts in your mind or have you like, I don't know, I haven't thought about that. There's things that we talk about when you get into like, the millennial kingdom, right? So there's there's a thousand years, and I'll we'll share some other verses about what that may look like in just a second. We start having kind of questions, right? That really John doesn't answer. So you got to look in like other places of scripture, and then even like there might be kind of two dots that you're like, well, what's the thread between those things? And you're trying to fill in some of those gaps with what you would understand. So for instance, if there's like, let's say. You know, there are people who are in the millennial kingdom and they're reigning, right? And they have these resurrected bodies and they live for a thousand years. Everybody at the end of Revelation 19 would have been wiped out, except those who are believers. But at the end of Revelation 20, we'll see, we haven't gotten there yet, but we see that there's another battle. Again, this is from a pre-millennial view. We would say, like, everything is future. And so there's this population that would have happened over this time. Where do they come from, right? And does their offspring have glorified bodies? And if they rebel against Christ, would they have a glorified body? You'd probably say no. So does that mean there's people with glorified bodies and non-glorified bodies? And then, so you have these questions that, you know, start to kind of, like, pop up as, like, it's kind of a challenging thought. How do I deal with that? How do I wrestle with that? I would say from a premillennial view, it's like one of those things that usually those in an amillennial or postmillennial view would be like, how do you answer that question? And you're like, that's a tough one. So, um, history, yeah. So, but I bring them up because I don't want to shy away from the fact that like just because it's a challenge doesn't mean like we don't think about it and just be like, well, just stuff it down. Just don't think about that at all. Because I don't think, again, that's what Christ wants us to do. When we look at Scripture, like, and we, again, come with our understanding, do some of these problems reshape us into maybe saying, like, well, do we have, maybe is that view of what we have about Scripture correct? Or is it make us, like, press in and say, like, well, how do I understand that? 
it was just like the whole idea of like Christ being fully human, you know, fully God and fully man, right? We just take that. But like there's nothing that we can experience to say like, oh, yeah, it makes sense for us. Because if we think of anything as like, I don't know, someone half fish and half man, right? You would have like some conception of what that looks like, right? Or if you said fully fish and fully man, you're like, I don't know what that even means, right? So, but when we talk about Christ being fully God and fully man, that's just something we have to take because that's what scripture says. We can take that a little bit more because God is not us or any other created creature. And so we kind of understand that and think about that in those terms. But when we say, again, there's God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, how do those two things complement each other? And there's other portions of Scripture that we have to say, like, well, when we understand this, how do these things, you know, make sense to us? So I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna give you the answer, really, because the answer is like, well, this is what I believe, but you know, people will poke holes in the things that maybe I say, and it's just like, well, this is where I feel pretty comfortable with where where I'm at in that. But there are the things like, as you read about these things and re- people reigning and ruling and what does that look like? And this idea of a first resurrection, well, that leads to a second resurrection. We'll talk about what that looks like. So if there's a first resurrection and people reigning during this thousand years, then there's an implication of a second. And what separates the first from the second? Resurrections. Are they the same thing or are they a different kind of resurrection, meaning one for believers and one for unbelievers? Or are they separated just as we as believers, all believers would say that we believe in two comings of Christ, whereas the Old Testament would just talk about the reign of Christ or the reign of the Messiah. And when the Messiah comes, this is what things will look like. Well, Christ left and all was not fulfilled. So we are all believing in a second coming. And Paul would affirm that in other epistles and other places in Scripture that we've already looked at, that Christ will come again. So we understand things that are talked about as two different events. John mentions these two resurrections. So are they two separate events separated by a thousand years? Or is there something else that goes along with that? Okay, so that's a great question, right? Because you have you have elders that are described. I mean, I guess we can look at that in Revelation chapter four uh, that were sitting on thrones. Um, you had right. I don't know if it'll be talked about whenever Shane preaches next. I think that's like the next thing they're going to is talking about. I think that's what's happening in, in Matthew twenty is when uh, James and John's mom was like, hey, can my son sit at your right hand? And, you know, so he promises them thrones. So what does that look like? Is it because they were martyred or is it something else? And so we'll, we'll, maybe we'll have to talk about that a little bit later. Um, but, yeah, so what's promised for them? And how do you pull all these things together and make it make sense as a totality? So... So there's challenges, but again, we'll, we'll look at like what all that means in just a second. Okay, so how is, uh, how is the person described in verse 6 that makes it through the first resurrection or that is a part of the first resurrection? Okay, so blessed and holy, and so 
Yeah. So one blessed, just as like, you know, Matthew 5 would say, blessed are those. And so just similar, like there is a blessing that, that happens to this person. Holy meaning set apart. But specifically then, what is, what is uh, characterized by this person? What did he say after that? Who's not what? Yeah. So the second death has no power. And again, we'll see what the second death is in just a second. But essentially, those people that are reigning and ruling like will die no longer. But just kind of, again, interesting what that would look like and does that, you know, what does that look like then? And what would that look like, you know, now? Depending on the view that you have. So not only like they're not afflicted by the second death, but what else, how else are they described? Okay, priests of God, right, and of Christ, and that they will reign. So we see again this idea of them being priests of God and that they will reign. Does that mean that there's going to be roles in this kingdom? And then why would a priesthood be necessary? Right, a priest is a mediator between God and and or you know Christ and man. So what what does that look like? And so we'll we'll look at that in just a second. Um, so turn to Ezekiel thirty six. I don't have this up here. It's also interesting to think about them saying priests of Christ when in the first three chapters the church of Christ, different churches were talked about. And so at the end though, this idea of this priesthood will be there. And if there's a priesthood, is there going to be an altar? Is there going to be a temple? Um, I said Ezekiel 36, but actually, yeah. So Ezekiel 36, so there's certain verses Ezekiel 36 we'll go to and we'll say as believers, like we affirm in Ezekiel 36, and you'll know those right away. But I also want us to see kind of the context of what this, this passage looks like. So verse 1, And you, son of man, prophesy to the mountains of Israel and say, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because the enemy said of you, Aha, and the ancient heights have become our possession. Therefore prophecy and say, Thus says the Lord God, Precisely they made you desolate and crushed you from all sides, so that you became the possession of the rest of the nations. And you became the talk and evil gossip of the people. Therefore, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains and the hills, the ravines and the valleys, the desolate wastes and the deserted cities, which have become a prey and derision to the rest of the nations all around. Therefore, says, uh, thus says the Lord God, Surely I have spoken in my hot jealousy against the rest of the nations and against all Edom, who gave my land to themselves as a possession with wholehearted joy and utter contempt that they might make it its pasture lands a prey. Therefore, prophesy concerning the land of Israel and say to the mountains and hills, to the ravines and valleys, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I have spoken in my jealous wrath because you have suffered the reproach of the nations. We're going to skip down a little bit. Verse 11, And I will multiply in you man and beast, they shall multiply and be fruitful, and I will cause you to be inhabited as in your former times, and will do uh, more good to you than ever before. Then you will know that I am the Lord. 
I will let people walk on you, even my people Israel, and they shall possess you, and you shall be their inheritance, and you shall no longer bereave them of children. Thus says the Lord God, because they say to you, you devour people and you bereave your nation of children, therefore you shall no longer devour people and no longer bereave your nation of children, declares the Lord God. So there's this change that has happened along uh, the nation and along the hills of Israel, that they won't even give up their, um, their children anymore. Verse 16, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man. When the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and deeds. Their ways were before me, were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land for the idols with which they had defiled it. Okay, we're going we're gonna to skip down. Therefore, verse 22, therefore says, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you've profaned among the nations to which you came. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you profaned among them. And the nations will know that I'm the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I'll take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries, bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. I will deliver you from all your uncleanness, and I will summon the grain and make it abundant, and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations." So we see these verses, right, that like God is speaking judgment against the land. And then says that they, he will do something different. Now, when we looked at John chapter 3, we came and looked at these verses. But I only looked at like the verses about the idea that, you know, when, when um, God says that I will purify you and I will clean you, right, and I will take out your heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh, right? We as believers understand what that means. But for those in Ezekiel's day, who's he talking to? Is he talking to the Israelites and that he will do it to them? He's specifically speaking to the land that they occupied and the people of that land and bringing those people back and doing things, right, that they won't suffer famine anymore and that they will... You know, their grain will be abundant and that, you know, that, that, you know, they, God will be their God. And so, and there's other verses, right? You know, verse 38, like the flock for sacrifices, like the flock of Jerusalem during the appointed feast, so shall the waste cities be filled with the flocks of people. Then they will know I am the Lord. So that's chapter 36. We understand that from a salvation standpoint and what that looks like, but it, particularly seems like he's talking to Israel and what that future restoration will look like. After 36 is Ezekiel 37. We looked at Ezekiel 37 because Nicodemus would have had an idea of what the being born again, like what context that would have put them in 
in Ezekiel 37 looking at the valley of dry bones. And, you know, there was a connection between the wind and the water uh, that, that Jesus told Nicodemus that that has been described in, in Ezekiel 37, that this valley of dry bones will be restored. And so we understand that there is not only a spiritual restoration that happens, but also a physical restoration that happens. Um, you know, in verse 11 and 37, he says, Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, Our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord. When I open up your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land, then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. Verse 20, he talks about these two sticks, one of Israel and one of Judah, and write on them Israel and Judah. In verse uh, 20, he says, When the sticks on which you write are in your hand before their eyes, then say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I'll take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone. I will gather them from all around and bring them to their own land, and I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. And one king shall be king over them all, and they shall be no longer two nations, and no longer divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves any more with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I'll save them from all their backslidings in which they've sinned and will cleanse them, and they shall be my people, and I'll be their God. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, Where your fathers lived, they and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. When you read these chapters, some things that you're asking, like, is this now what's happening, right, in a spiritual rule? Is this something that's happening in a kingdom that's being described in this thousand years kingdom? Or is this described as when all sin is done away with and, you know, there will be a new heavens and a new earth? I know we haven't gotten there yet. But these are kind of the ways that, like, when you read prophecy of the past, saying, like, well, what, is, what were they talking about in the future, and how do we pull all these things together? Well, I'll say there's definitely verses that are, you know, in Revelation that might be, you know, hard from a future kingdom standpoint. There's other verses, particularly the end of Ezekiel, that's even harder. We're going to skip chapter 38 and 39, reference them when we come back, because the battle that happens in the next few verses references Ezekiel 38 and 39, but I want you to at least have a context of these chapters that we're going through. And then Ezekiel 40 to 48 talks about where Ezekiel is given a vision and he's, he's being shown a temple of God. And in this temple, there will be an altar and there will be priests and there will be sacrifices. And Israel, at the end of Ezekiel, is even appointed land. So, what does that look like? And is that a spiritual temple that Ezekiel, like this angel, or this could be, could be the Lord himself, um, is measuring and showing Ezekiel? Is this a temple that's in the kingdom uh, that's described in the thousand years? Which, then you say, well, why are there sacrifices? But I have answers for that. But anyway, um, you know, if you've got Jesus, why a sacrifice? Or is this a temple that 
is in the new heavens and the new earth, which would be the same question is why is there, you know, a priest and an altar and sacrifices, but priests are talked about. And uh, again, what's the purpose of even Israel giving been given land? So those are things that kind of like, we we try to like fit together and think, well, how does this all fit within this context? Um, Are there others that are described, right? We see, you know, in this kingdom, um, and we've already kind of answered some of those questions. And finally, let's go to a couple other Old Testament passages as we kind of like reflect upon this, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. Um, I want you to go to Isaiah 65. I think I actually have this one up here. Uh, Isaiah 65. So a lot of Isaiah's talk talks about judgment on the land for what the things, you know, for, for what the people had done. But there's always then again, this like glimmer of hope. It's like judgment, 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 hope, judgment, judgment, judgment. You know, it's, I don't know what the, you know, number is the ratio, but it's a lot of judgment, but there's always a little bit of hope. And even at the end of Isaiah, we read for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. Now we're going to talk about, new heavens and a new earth and a recreation of, of all of creation, what that looks like. But in this context, you see some things that kind of pop up that is this all together at one time or is this separated and how do we understand these things? Verse 18, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad of my people. No more shall be heard in the sound of weeping and the cry of distress No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. But the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and inhabit, and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands." They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and the descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer while they are yet speaking. I will hear the wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. And so we see right in this kind of picture of like paradise, they're still like having children. So does that happen, you know, in the future? You know, Jesus talked about the fact that, like, you know, when uh, I think it was one of the scribes had asked him about, you know, if, if a man, a man wo- if a woman marries a man and you know, he dies, then she marries his brother and he dies. And so who's, who's she going to be with in the resurrection? And he's like, you don't understand how the, all these things work. So is that, will there be children? Will there be marrying? Or is this talking about a different time? And we talk about in these verses here, right, that somebody will die after 100 years. Now, we don't say that, like, 100 years is when people will die, but will death still occur? And when will that death occur? Well, the death won't occur for anyone who made it in the first resurrection, but there will be death for those who don't, you know, for the second, the second death at the second resurrection. We'll talk about what that looks like, or, sorry, the second death. 
So the Old Testament kind of talks about some of these things. It doesn't give us a full picture, but we have kind of glimpses of that as well. And then if you went to Ezekiel 14, um, we won't read it, but it's described as kind of a day of calamity, but then the reign of Christ, where the reign, the Christ like sits uh, atop of the Mount of Olives, and then describing this time of kind of like, um, refreshing, but then also a time for the disobedience of the nations, meaning those that don't come and worship the Lord, there will be a famine for those, you know, described specifically of Egypt um, in that chapter. So you say, like, well, when is that happening? What does that look like? So in this idea of kind of the kingdom, you know, kind of appears, right, that there is going to be, again, uh, a diminishment of death, meaning people will live a longer time. There will be kind of a rejuvenation of the land. There will be a reigning and rule of Christ with a temple and sacrifices. Some would say that those are memorial sacrifices. They're not pointing to Christ, but like back towards Christ. So that's kind of like when we do the Lord's Supper, uh, we're memorializing what happened with Christ on the cross. This will be a, you know, celebration of memorial is the thought of how that could look like. And then there will be nations that will populate during this time. And then at the end of the time, and we'll see what that looks like, a, uh, a gathering again of the nations for disobedience. And that's going to happen, though, you know, this, this uh, long period of life, this uh, restoration is going to happen while Satan is bound and Christ is reigning in this millennium, and there's others that are reigning as well. So what does that all look like? It's hard to say, right? You start to kind of like fill in some gaps, but you don't want to go too far. Uh, but again, you're looking at different passages. Others would see these passages, again, as like looking all future, like after the new heavens and the new earth. And some of these are more like spiritual. So this death is like just you know, not as specific. Like people won't actually die. It would just be like a you know, hyperbole, like if someone did die, that would be ridiculous because people don't die in the new heavens and the new earth. So again, that's how they would explain it. Um, but it kind of helps, you know, the way we see things kind of colors uh, our view on how we uh, interpret scripture. So we've only got a few more verses left, right? But the challenges don't come any easier. And then we'll get to a point, then again, like we realign and we're like, oh yeah, this all, all makes sense. So, um, but we'll get, we'll get there. So we're kind of getting through the challenging parts. But the goal I want you to have is to not just walk away and be like, I don't know. <laughs> or to be like, honey, what do we believe? Um, <laughs> which can happen, right? And so, not that like it needs to be like the most important thing, right? It's like when you walk up to a conversation at a dinner party and someone's talking about this and you're like, okay, this is not, not my bag. But... What do we pull away from it? I mean, I remember talking, you know, I have a different millennial view from somebody else. And I remember these two brothers were talking. Actually, it was here, here at the school, and I was doing carpool over here. And the two brothers were talking. Um, they held a different view. And I was like, well, I hold this other view. And um, since we're doing carpool, I didn't want to, like, get into a big discussion. But he thought that, like, um, those that held a premillennial view had no use for the gospel, Meaning, like, if you believe in a rapture and God's just, you know, going to rapture those out of the earth and, you know, people are either destined to be a part of the tribulation or not be a part of the tribulation, then, like, there's no point of the gospel. They, they held a post-millennial view where 
the gospel and the church like has an effect in bringing the kingdom, right? The more that the gospel grows, the more that the kingdom will grow, and the more then Christ will then come, it, like ushers in that time. So the gospel plays like you know at least sharing the gospel and evangelism shares a bigger part. And I said, well, that's not like how I view, you know that's not how I would view things. Is like evangelism is still important. And so they were like, oh, I didn't think you believed that. <laughs> and so. Sometimes we have a view of like what others believe, right? But they should still help us like inform. I think like the gospel even has like more, you know, I feel like resonance because there's this picture of hope, this picture of the future, this picture of what things could look like. And even if like we're a part of it in a particular way or not, or it's like our reigning and ruling or whatever that looks like is a little bit different, it doesn't like diminish what Christ is going to do because in the end, I kind of believe like when we experience it, we'll be like, huh, it was a little bit different than I thought. Just because when Christ came back, it was a little bit different than everyone thought. And when Christ went away, you know, right, the disciples were like, hey, is this the time that we're putting the kingdom in place? And he's like, mm, not yet. So they, it's a little bit different than they thought as well. And then if you go through Acts, with the Gentiles being involved, they're like, hmm, I didn't expect that. And so we see like all a part of church history, those things being a part. But it doesn't mean that we, again, just like throw our hands up, it helps us even like dig in and say, well, how do I make sense of these things? Because we want to, again, have a faith that is rest, resting upon, you know, um, legitimate and reasonable understanding of Scripture and how it all kind of makes sense. But we're all going to be surprised how it happens uh, and even when it happens because Christ will come as a thief in the night. So we know that... Uh, you know, to happen as well. All right, we're going to pause there. There's a few more things to be said about kind of like this final battle, uh, the end of these verses. Uh, but we'll have to get that in a few weeks. Um, I'm going to be gone for a couple weeks of vacation here and there. So Tim's going to step in. Um, is he here? The other left. So, um, and uh, we'll have to come back to this and finish this up um, the end of July. Before we do, I know if you have any questions or thoughts,